Hello, you're listening to Shut Up and Watch This, episode number 61. I'm Dave. I'm Ashley. And we're a couple in Austin, Texas, getting to know each other better by sharing our must-see movies and guilty pleasures from the past. They're not always movies. This is one that's not a movie. (laughs) It's not a movie. So each episode, one of us gets to choose something. A thing. A thing. A film, <laughs> a film, a television show, a media, property. a media property, yes, <laughs> a book on cassette. Oh, we haven't done that one. A podcast. Oh yeah. A theatrical experience. Yes. And then we unpack it all here for you guys. So I was in charge of our viewing uh, exploration. That's right. This week. What did you choose, Dave? I chose something that put us off track by a whole week. It did. It chose. <laughs> We were supposed to put this out a week ago. Apologies. Yeah. And here we are because I chose a television show. I chose a five season television show. It was five seasons? Five seasons. Moonlighting. Moonlighting. Do you guys remember Moonlighting? Does anybody out there remember Moonlighting? I do not remember Moonlighting. Moonlighting. It ran from 1985 to 1989. I think that's right. Yeah. And it starred Sybil Shepard and Bruce Willis as Maddie Hayes. And David Addison, although you'll have to switch the order there, because I reversed that. They run a detective agency. Yeah. Moon. 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 Blue, blue Moon. Blue Moon. Blue Moon Detective blue agency. agency. That was my choice. Yes. Well, that was a short episode. <laughs> so we had a little difficulty because um, you hadn't seen this in like 30 years, I guess. I have never rewatched this series. Yeah, yeah. I saw this series when it went out. Or 40 years, I guess. And I don't think I caught it right away, so I probably joined it in late 1985. Or maybe, probably they reran some of the, the very short first season in 86 before running mm. the new. So I probably caught up with it and, and really, wa- really got into it. Season two and season three, probably, before dropping out again. I didn't stick it stick it out the whole way. I was in high school. I was, what, 14, 15, 16. Um, I haven't seen this show ever since. I have barely thought about it ever since. I don't know how it dropped into my mind all at once. It's virtually completely out of print, Mm. which, hey, if you like this, (laughs) please catch up with it. Yeah. (laughs) By using uh, whatever means necessary. Um, We use like some sort of weird third party app to watch the third season. No, no. So in the end, well, the the third 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 season episode, we may have had to go out there and and Google around on Daily Motion and such such things. Oh, is that okay? That's where Sky gets access to like Canadian shows that aren't available in the U.S., right? (laughs) Yeah. So, um, but. Season one and two was a DVD release that's totally out of print. You can't order it from Amazon, but I found it for, you can find it on eBay pretty easily. And if you wait around, if you're so interested, it comes up at a price that's not insane. Yeah. And uh, I thought it was worth adding to the collection and catching up with again, because I suddenly remembered it and thought, how, what a weird world that you don't even know this show exists. Because at some point I mentioned it and you had no idea what I was talking about. You know what I was watching when Moonlighting was on? Punky Brewster? Yes. Actually, Punky Brewster, My Little Pony, uh, Reading Rainbow, Sesame Street. That's what I was watching when Moonlighting was on. Why do you think I wasn't watching? No, I wasn't watching that. <laughs> well, in 85, I mean, for most of 85, I was four years old. So, And by the time I was 89, I still probably was not watching evening dramas. Certainly not hour long. You know, so... I don't know if it's, I don't even know if it's one my mom watched. The only thing I remember her watching when I was a kid was like Dallas and Dynasty, you know? Yeah, I mean, that stuff was on forever. It was probably still on then. Yeah. Falcon Crest, all of those shows. I don't know that one either. Okay, well, I remember that. <laughs> so, so I, I mean, remember like, Remington's Deal, which you don't even also never heard you of. You know, I was born in the, you know, the first year of 80. Of the of the 80s, 81. <laughs> I was born in I was the born first year in the of 80. Of 80. <laughs> But, like, the thing is, is, like, you think that I would be an 80s kid, and I do have some memory of, like, stuff that happened in, like, 88, 89, because I would have been, like, 8, 9 in that time period. I have no memory of, like, popular culture during that time period at all. I don't think, I I mean, for much, much of that time, all we had was a small, very small black and white television, because we were not very wealthy 
when I was a chit, when I was a child, I just, we just didn't. And like when we moved to our new house, which would have been sometime in like 86 or something like that. Um, I remember I was super excited because the people that we bought the house from, they had Disney Channel and it was playing on the TV when we went to go look at the house. And I thought that the TV came with Disney, the Channel, Disney Channel, but that was not if the case. If we had a newer TV, we'd have the Disney Channel. <laughs> yes. I want their TV. Apparently Disney Channel did not come with, uh, with, uh, with, with the house, necessarily speaking. So yeah. anyway, that's, that's why I didn't see it because like... I like I don't know a world in which I would be like in a state where I could watch that and understand it at all at that at that time period, you know. <laughs> no, but here's the thing. This show never gets talked about anymore. It seems to be forgotten, but it was like really groundbreaking at the time. Mm. It was really a strange show. Yeah. It it, was it is really, a very strange show. It was an hour long comedy drama but shot sort of in the style of like a screwball comedy mm-hmm. with like super fast uh, overlapping dialogue, battle of the sexes. Yeah. Bruce Willis, totally unknown. This was like his first thing. Yeah. I don't think I've ever lived in a world where Bruce Willis wasn't like a big time star. You know, I think was it was like, around season four. I mean, I have, but <laughs> he took some time off to go do die hard. Yeah. And the rest was history. Yeah. I mean, like, then the show, like, crawled to a halt. Like, I think that one last season they managed to get out. But, um, yeah, he started on this show. Sybil Shepherd had already had a career. Yeah. And so this was more of, like, a back-in-the-limelight second career kind of thing. But um, I think, so, the usually... Pray tell, Dave, why did you choose this show? Yes. <laughs> so I'm getting there, gradually. <laughs> This came this this came up in my life. Yeah, I'll say it. This came up in my life pretty much the year my dad died. Mm. Like, and life completely changed. I ended up move, you know, living with my sister. Um, so this came out of that year, nineteen eighty five, and I caught up with it probably a few months later. And that so this also coincides with this time we always talk about on the show. Like we're slowly like revealing our biographies of when um, I lived with my sister in San Francisco in the Castro District, a few blocks away from the Castro Theater. And that's when I became a complete film addict, nut. I wanted to make movies. I wanted to see everything. I discovered like the greats of Hollywood. It, like literally around the same year that this show came out, I wandered into screenings with my sister of the original screwball comedy classics that you know howard hawks and frank capra and bringing up baby and my favorite wife and the awful truth and all of that stuff and um and so i needed the laughter and the silliness and the dizziness Mm. and here was something that like kind of took that package and then gave it to you week every week yeah. but in a modern setting i know you can, you're looking at it now through the lens of 2020 seeing this this time capsule from the 80s yeah right 80s politics 80s sexual dynamic 80s clothes cars yeah. technology they're running a detective agency in a world without the internet yeah they're not very good at running their detective I agency. Like, I don't think I ever saw, other than the first episode we watched, I don't think I ever saw them solve an actual crime. I mean, and <laughs> I'd be curious to see a couple more just to know if they ever do figure out how to solve yeah, crimes. Because, yeah. like, like, there's one in the, in the very, we watched the pilot first. There's one thing where he does some amount of research. <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. <laughs> They're not very good at what they do. I think no. most of the time they stumble through. Yeah. They get into awful situations while trying to solve a crime. And I don't know that they always intentionally solve the crime. <laughs> <laughs> Things usually work out. Well, I mean, and then there's like some like hanging in like in the in the pilot, there's just like a dead guy in the back of their car at one point and like it never comes up again. Dead guy in the car. So <laughs> Hanging thread of dead guy in car. (laughs) So I had to see this show again for nostalgia. Yeah. (laughs) I really, really fondly remember like watching these shows with my sister 
my sister's nine years older than me and, you know, she became my legal guardian, but we, you know, used to hang out and have TV time and burrito time and all that. And, and this was like one of our shows that it would be, I, I forget what night it ran on, but it was like, it's moonlighting night. And it was just so like silly. Mm. And we needed something really silly. And she was in grad school. She was raising me. And, um, and it was just, uh, like the situations were absurd. They always had great guest stars. Everybody popped up on this show. Well, you had an episode with Tim Robbins in it, but you know, Whoopi Goldberg's in it yeah. and like everybody's shows up at some point or another. There's some shows like that, that are kind of a time capsule with character actors and, and big name actors kind of coming through all the time. But it was just so weird and silly and like a screwball comedy and uh, I wanted to see it again and what I didn't remember until I started researching this again was how how insane it got like how they like started with the format and then like destroyed it <laughs> on purpose <laughs> like how can we break this and yeah. add another twist into it so it this was why it was really hard to show you the series not having looked at it in 30 years because I didn't know what, I didn't remember any specific episodes. Yeah. So I figured, well, we better start with the pilot to, you know, kind of introduce the setup. And then I had, you know, we usually, when we do a TV series on this show, we usually pick like four episodes or something. So yeah. we did four total. We did the pilot and then we did epi- the second episode, yeah. which was okay, but it was just a standard episode, Gunfight at the So-So Corral. Yes. And then we did... <laughs> The dream sequence always rings twice. Which I think was my favorite. And of Atomic the ones Shakespeare. We yeah. And now I've talked for a long time, so I have to be <laughs> quiet. So this one, because so you, the way we broke this down is that we were going to try to watch three or four episodes in one week, and it just didn't happen because the pilot is like an hour and a half long. I mean, and I'll start with the pilot. The so we saw the pilot and the the first or the. First regular season episode, so season episode two, I guess, um, like back to back, like one night and then the next. So like I was, I was unsure why you had showed it to me at all at that point, like because we hadn't had any conversation yeah. about it. You were like, we're just gonna watch this, and I was like, okay, I'm from the eighties. Um, <laughs> oh, and I like know. I was, I was like, why is he showing me this? After the first two episodes, and, and you're like, well, we need to watch two more. And I was like, really? Two more? Because, uh, <laughs> like, the politics, the... So, I love... I'm going to say, I love Bruce Willis. I think he's great. I love Simple Shepherd. I've always <laughs> loved Simple Shepherd. And, like, anything I've seen her in. I love Simple Shepherd. They are great. I mean, like, they're good actors. And Bruce Willis does... I mean, like, he does a good job of being charming despite being the most, like, the way he's written is, like, the most sexist, terrible asshole in the world. <laughs> and then Sybil Shepherd has to pretend like she's charmed by this <laughs> asshole. I don't think it's Bruce Willis's fault. He actually rises above the material because he's just that great yeah. of a personality. He somehow manages to pull out some charm out of this, like, terrible, boorish like asshole who only wants to get his way and will not listen to anything that she says. And um, I know like that was like funny and fun in the eighties, I guess, but I just, it's, it makes my skin crawl. I just cannot deal with it. And the like, sort of like how her, her feelings and her very clearly stated preferences and her very clearly drawn boundaries are completely like bowled over by this, I don't know. It, it was really hard to watch that. That said, in the pilot, we got to the part where the exciting conclusion and there's a scene that shot on location at the top of what, this art deco, this beautiful downtown. I don't art know deco- the name of the building. You, I forgot. I thought you would know the name of the building. I, I did know it. It's a General Electric building and I can't remember. I think it's a General Electric. But anyway, it's you guys would recognize it. it's the bright green Art Deco building in downtown LA. We've been there. We've we went on an architecture tour of LA the last time we were in town. 
and they talked about this gorgeous building, which is like green terracotta with why it's why it's green. But this was clearly filmed on location. This is not a studio stage. They were like up in the air. I assume there's nets and stuff. So they didn't really have CGI yeah. in the yeah. 80s that could do anything like this. Most effects were still practical or they were ph- photographic effects. Yeah. And you have them hanging off the clock tower yeah. of that building. <laughs> well, and, you know, that was kind of an interesting... It was kind of an interesting Indiana Jones kind of pi- kind of plot they had going on with, like, there oh, were the Nazis and there were diamonds. Nazi diamonds. Yeah. That's t- <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, I mean, like, you know, that was, like, the standard, like, because Indiana Jones came out probably, what, two years before, or when did Indiana Jones come out? Was it around the same time? Uh, the original was eighty one. Okay, yeah. So Raiders, I mean, that's so like probably the, Temple of Doom had already. Yeah, come out. the standard plot for for eighties thrillers is involves Nazis and Nazis, diamonds, diamonds, that sort of thing, that kind of thing. I was hoping that I was actually thinking it was going to be nuclear in nature, since there was a code involved. There probably is one that's nuclear because everyone nature. knows that diamonds yeah. are worthless. That's just one of my soapboxes that I'll. Stand on. We've talked about that on another episode. Yes. I've even linked to that article that yeah. you're obsessed with. Di- diamonds are worthless. Um, but I was I was really drawn in by that scene. It's very cinematic. It's very dramatic. And when you're watching it, you know that it's not a soundstage. You know, it's it's pretty incredible. I was like, and then I was like, how expensive was this thing to shoot? So then I immediately went to the Wikipedia page and saw that it's like the at the time was the most expensive produced show on on television. They were shooting like a movie instead of like a television show. Yeah, you know, it it was actually um, it was one of the only shows back then that was filmed in house by a studio by ABC in this case, and so. Glenn David Caron, the uh, showrunner, had a, they had a lot more control over. I mean, the the studio gave them a lot more control over budget. I mean, they had more at their resources. Yeah. you know, to when things ran over and the show was doing well, they got they'd throw more money at them, that kind of thing. So it it was an unusual production situation. Yeah. So I mean that. You know, that was that was like the, the big exciting thing. And then we, we got into this episode two. And I don't really remember much about episode two other than like she was constantly wearing the same color pink. Like I didn't remember in the 80s that everybody had silk, pink silk, you know, business suits that they walked around in. But uh, Sybil Shepherd wore two. <laughs> but then, then after we got that, I was like, Skeptical as to, but then we got to uh, the third episode you showed me, which is, is that from season two? So we had to skip ahead to season two. Yeah. Season one was very short. It's like five episodes, six episodes. And they were finding their footing. Yeah. Season two is where they're like, let's try this. Yeah. And then how about (laughs) we do this instead? So tell us a little about... That the dream sequence always rings twice. So, I mean, the postman always rings twice, which is actually a noir that I haven't seen. Um, anyway, oh. so it's... Um, I'll file that away. Yeah, so the the title makes reference to that uh, noir film, um, which I recognize the name because it's a very obvious sounding name. It doesn't come up very much. Um, but we have... Um, I don't know even know why they were there. They were visiting a, a closed-down nightclub for some reason, and the guy who owns the nightclub who's trying to get rid of it just mentions to them that there was a ghastly murder, you in know. In the 40s. In the 40s, uh, you know, a, a woman and her lover kill her husband, you know. that's So then they get into an argument about um, whether it was her that killed her husband or the or her lover who killed her husband. And so then, you know, they go their separate ways, and she has a dream where... Um, she's convinced to kill her husband by this evil guy who seduced her. And then he has a parallel dream where he dreams that he's the the poor sod who gets manipulated into... By a femme fatale. By a femme fatale, yeah. And then in those dream sequences, they play the parts of the the torch singer and the... What did he play? He was a trumpet, yeah. And And her husband was a clarinet player. But the dream sequence are shot in full-on... 35 millimeter black and white like it's actually filmed the like, color and then transferred no to it's black not and... actually i just read oh the... but i read it 
<laughs> I read something No, different. they said it would have been cheaper. Oh, okay. I just read in the Wikipedia article. Oh, okay. It would have been cheaper if they'd filmed it in color and, oh, okay. and colorized it, but Glenn David Karen insisted Glenn Gordon Karen insisted on shooting it um, in black and okay. white. I read that. Which wrong. was much more expensive. Yeah. Well, it looked good. I mean, it looked good. <laughs> so that I think was my favorite of the ones that we watched, you know. And it started with an Orson Welles disclaimer. Oh yeah, intro. That was that? weird. And you, it was like film the week he died or something like that. Yeah. So the the production execs at ABC didn't want to show this because it was unheard of to to have a primetime black and white new show and they they're you know they're suits they're yeah. like everybody's going to be confused <laughs> like you guys have to make a disclaimer at the beginning so people won't get scared and turn away turn the channel so they got Orson Welles <laughs> to do kind of a tongue-in-cheek mock serious yeah. sort of you're about to see an experiment on the show moonlighting and you know yeah and uh boy that sounded like Moira for a second um <laughs> and it's the last thing he he felt they filmed it, you know, a week before they aired the show. They went and got that disclaimer, and he he died uh, like four days later. Yeah, or and they they by the time they ran the episode that week, they they put on a, a memorial credit to him. Crazy, but he's he's old <laughs> friends with Sybil Shepherd and Peter Bogdanovich, um, lifelong friends. So I think that probably played into it somehow. <laughs> yeah, that, so I mean, I think that that one. I don't know if. Just the writers writing in a style and not putting it in modern times. It didn't feel as squicky <laughs> as it did in some of the early episodes. And, you know, I'm curious if, like, maybe if I watch more of season two or, or something that maybe they would have, like, you know, studied their hand on the sort of heavy-handed sexual politics that they were driving for. But so. I- I think that they do, yeah. but I can't say 100%. Here's the interesting thing. I was going to like hit the ripcord and totally bail on this yeah. because I can read you. I can read yeah. you. And I knew you were not into this at all. Mm. And I knew that it wasn't working. And then I got kind of upset about it because like, I was like, <laughs> I remember this show was good and it was really funny. And yeah. like, it's not fair that I just chose the wrong episodes or that I'm not familiar enough with the series to be able to show you, to be able to even demonstrate to you what was unique or interesting about it. I was like, if she can't even see what's unique or interesting about it or, or anything about the potential, this was one of the biggest shows on television at the time. It it, Emmy nominated. That's almost squicky to me. (laughs) It's like, everybody's totally into this. Ah. It's one of the first... I don't... You know, I didn't grow up in that. I mean, like, the 90s had its own particular blend of misogyny in a different way. But the 80s, it just... It feels like... It feels like a bazillion years ago to me, you know? (laughs) Well, I think, and I remember that, you know, we have this Taming of the Shrew episode, which is the other one we watched, Atomic Shakespeare. But I think that... This, I think, I want to say, and I hope that this series is a taming of David Addison to some extent. Yeah. Because I do think he's not awful through and through as he is in episodes one and two. Yeah. And that it genuinely becomes um, sparks flying in an interesting way. Yeah. You know, and her giving, pushing back and him not being as much of an asshole, but trying yeah. to navigate... Yeah. Being partners in this business with, <laughs> with uh, you know, the shampoo model. That's We yeah. didn't even talk about the premise. Yeah, that's but. true. <laughs> so, which, you know, but that's like a pretty standard premise. Like, rich person loses all their money. And yeah, then, see, we've seen it's that. It's like Schitt's Creek. It's, it's just exactly <laughs> like Schitt's Creek. She, she's uh, the Rose family. Yes. <laughs> she's uh, 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 a former model, cover girl. And the face of Blue Moon Shampoo, Simple yeah, Shepherd. That's what everybody knows her from. Yeah. And uh, she's the Blue Moon Shampoo girl. Well, this all is this, this imaginary world where actors can get rich doing commercials. They don't get rich doing commercials. Commercials are no, a branch of No, but she was a model. I mean, <laughs> yeah, the yeah. opening scene of the... They actually used yeah. Sybil's real um, cover shots, shots and, yeah. and from... Because she was a model before she did uh, uh, Last Picture Show and all that. Yeah, so I guess... 
she did a glamour cover shot and she was discovered by Peter Bogdanovich yeah. in the grocery store. Saw her picture and decided she was JC. That's right. Actually, <laughs> there's a there's a fabulous uh, podcast all about uh, Bogdanovich and Sybil Shepherd and all and like the whole Bogdanovich thing. On, I was uh, really fascinated yeah. with him for a while. You know, I read a bunch of stuff about him and about that whole because he sort of just inserted himself in. Oh the whole, well, there's a great. I'm telling you, know? <laughs> you there's a great long form podcast. Yeah. That's, um, Turner Classic Movies. Mm-hmm. It's their first podcast. It's a five episode, five or six episode. Um, series on Peter Bogdanovich, but they've done interviews with him, like really good yeah. personal interviews with him. But and then they use it to tell the story of his his life and career and his time with Sybil Shepherd and Polly Platt mm. and um, the ups and downs in his career. And I really highly recommend it. It's it's really well produced, and I think he probably tells some stories he hasn't really told before. It's pretty candid, yeah. And um, I really enjoyed it. I think, and they got Simple Shepherd to come on to it too, so they yeah. interview other people. Well, uh, I, you know, I was familiar with Bogdanovich's work because my dad was uh, a giant fan of Paper Moon and showed it to me and my brother when we I were love Paper kid. Moon. Yeah. I love Last Picture Show. Well, too. and Last Picture Show is, I mean, so it's funny, you know, I grew up. I've probably mentioned this before where last picture show was shot. So like that was really like the movie and the book were instrumental in me falling in love with that area in the country after sort of not liking it for much of my life, you know, um, learning to appreciate it for its good points, you know, and, and, and the humanity that exists, you know, anyway. So anyway, and, and and Sybil Shepherd is just so good as, as JC. And, but anyway, I love Sybil Shepherd. I think she's fantastic. I just think that, like, every time I read anything about this, it just screams to me how Hollywood and production was just so terrible to women during this time period. Like, Oh, tell me more. Like, Maybe so I- I'm reading just the Wikipedia page, and there's, like, this description of how, like... The producers are blaming her for the show not lasting longer than it was because, and like she states, I think at some point that like they're working like 12 hour days, like six or seven days a week. And then like they're blaming her for taking time off. I didn't realize this, but she gave birth to twins. During yeah, somewhere the... between season four and season five. She... Yeah. So they blamed her for that. They're like, she's off having twins. Like that's not. Anyway, so it's just like this, I think that a lot of the sort of negative portrayal that she gets of being difficult to work with are all just a symptom of her being a woman who's working while, you know, trying to trying to have a family, trying to have a life. You know, it's not feasible for anyone to work 12 hours. I love Sybil Shepherd, and I, yeah. I think they were lucky to have her. Yeah, like, yeah. She's... she's so good. She's really good. And then, like, to have these, like, directors being like, oh, you can't work 12 hours a day? So that's the that's one you of know? the interesting tensions of this show. I mean, think that's those are really great points that I, I read some of those same stories, yeah. but I didn't make quite all the same connections about what it all adds up to. Well, it's funny. But, I want to read... So this yeah, yeah, yeah. is this is from her Wikipedia page. So this is just this is about her whole career, not specifically moonlighting. But there's a list of about six things that she said in her um, autobiography. So she oh, said, "Oh, I would read that." <laughs> Me too. Uh, she agreed to a date with Jack Nicholson to make Bogdanovich jealous. She later canceled that date, and Jack Nicholson would not speak to her again, except to say hi at a party many years later. That's story one. Robert De Niro asked her out during the filming of Taxi Driver. She turned him down, and he did not speak to her in accepting character for the rest of the filming. <laughs> she had a sexual encounter with co-star Don Johnson during the making of the television series The Long Hot Summer. The jazz musician Stan Getz came on to her during a recording session for her album, but she declined. He never spoke to her again. Shepard and her Moonlighting co-star were tempted to become lovers off screen, which I guess would have been the first year because he married Demi Moore the next year. So, um, like, essentially this woman is, like, being hit on and asked out all the time. And when she says no, these guys just cannot deal with it and they don't talk to her ever again. You know? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like... It's terrible. Why can't you be grown-up human beings? And I don't know. So I can... I, so it must have been what? really frustrating. So I guess the Bruce Willis character stands in for all of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, he does. Which is a real, which is a real thing. Well, You're like, it's, it's a real like, thing, but I don't want to watch it on I TV. I don't know much about her personally, but I mean, like, I know a little bit about her politics. She's active in, um, you know, the fight for gay marriage. She's active in abortion rights stuff so i'm guessing that she just wasn't as elegant as shutting these people down as i i I, my guess is the way she plays things is she's a little bit more no nonsense than so she wasn't as good as playing politics and i don't know i don't know anyway i to me it in the in the shadow of all this is happening since the me too movement and all of that yeah yeah to me it strikes me as it has all the underpinnings of that sort of thing of the director blaming her even though i'm sure bruce willis is not around as much either now that he's been in die hard which is one of the biggest right right. you know i'm sure that it was hard to work around his schedule just like it was hard to work around hers you know um they said that in the article i read that (laughs) but but he he checked out (laughs) like he checked out interest wise yeah because he wasn't didn't care so much anymore about maintaining the connection to this series because he was getting offers and all the signs were that he was going to be like a huge star which he was well it's funny and like i came along in like when i started watching bruce willis i mean the first thing i remember him in was pulp fiction where he it was like his second time around is coming back and and then he was in the sixth sense and he was the the prize fighter he was in 12 (laughs) monkeys and fifth element and you know all of that so i mean like i have him as like more of sort of a grungy kind of actor, less of this comedic. I've still never seen Die Hard, so that's another I thing. I know that, yeah. But, I mean, like, I, I get the sense that, that he's a good guy, and I think he's a talented actor, and so he was able to make something. Even even I could see the chemistry there, even amongst how horribly I think his character was written in that in those first two episodes that we watched. So they had to, um, they had to fight to get him because yeah. he nailed the the audition for this character and um but he was pretty much a virtual unknown and yeah. the abc executives didn't want to have anything to do with it and they had to like didn't they say he was it tom Selleck or somebody else? i don't know that's interesting yeah. i don't know i uh, there was there were several but, other people um, he was but the one of their arguments was that no one will ever believe that they have chemistry but they had chemistry yeah, yeah. they had chemistry so I mean, there's all kinds of ways. One of the tensions of this show that's running through it are the kinds of conflicts you're talking about yeah. in the production. The production was notorious. Like, it, like at a certain point, I understand that Sybil Shepherd and and you know, forgive me if I'm I, like they hated each other at yeah. a certain point, and they didn't even want to be on set together. And yet, they, I got that sense in the in the last one we watched, the Taming of the Shrew one. I. You're, just you're even reading it in in the actual yeah, text of well, the show. Yeah, I did. Well, I didn't. I hadn't read that. Yeah, you know until no. But I mean, you're picking up something. Yeah, yeah. They they got to the point apparently in season five, and I don't think I ever watched season five, but the last season where because of um, Sybil raising her twins, yeah, and them not really being able to work together anymore for whatever reason, they drove each other nuts. I understand. Unless this is just, this is probably a lot of this is legend or something that they had to, they started shooting stuff where they would just shoot their stuff totally separately. They would get her when they could because of her parenting schedule. Yeah. And then they would have to shoot coverage with, you know, single shots and and stuff of, and scenes with uh, Bruce Willis completely separate weeks later, you know, and they would have to come up with a show. My understanding of that is they had to shoot early in her pregnancy so that it wouldn't be as obvious. So they did a lot of shooting with her That's what I must be thinking of, yeah. And then, um, and then when he could come in, when it worked for his schedule, like they already, it had been around for months, this footage. So you couldn't go back and change anything based on, on, which I mean is unfortunate, but that's, you know, that's the way, that's the way, if you have an actress who's pregnant, your choices are to shoot early in the pregnancy so it's not obvious, write in a pregnancy, or, you know, do the the boob up shot, you know, so yeah, yeah, that you yeah. don't, you know, for the whole season, which they do. I mean, like, um, for some reason, the only example I can think of is a- Allison Hannigan from... Um, from how, how I Met Your Mother, yeah. she was pregnant during one of the... And so they just shot from the chest up. Or yeah. she was always, like, behind a couch or, you know, behind a bush or something mm-hmm. like that. So, I mean, like, 
yeah, it sucks, but there's ways to work around it. Or you just wait till it's not an issue anymore. I guess production TV, TV production schedules are a lot more flexible now than they used to be because we don't have the traditional sort of, well, you don't have to put out as many episodes for one, you know, um, per season, but also like, it's not, you know, a lot of people are on the shorter, like 13, 13 episodes. Yeah. And you know, you can, they can come out in the winter, they can come out in the summer, they can come out in the fall, you know, there's not this sort of strict thing anymore. So some of it is, you know, stuck in that seasons of television kind of thing that well you already talked about the relentless schedule that yeah. they had this was not an easy show to work no. with like because of the i think gilmore girls was this way too because of the speed of the dialogue yeah the scripts would ran would run like 120 pages instead of 60 pages well and imagine like, like there's so you're much working dialogue. 12 hours a day and you have to memorize enough for the next day's worth of shooting well in know? the early seasons apparently um they uh willis and Sybil Shepard were getting their we're getting new scenes the day they're shooting like he's writing stuff as they're shooting it and changing it along the way yeah. so obviously he can't do that <laughs> later on yeah when they have to work around the pregnancies and stuff like that but that they were on a really relentless uh <laughs> grueling production <laughs> schedule it's like just getting fed just pages and pages yeah. of stuff to memorize by shooting time in a couple hours you know yeah um it's insane. So I persisted because I persisted in the end because <laughs> interesting choice of words. <laughs> yeah. Interesting choice of words. Totally. Sorry. <laughs> Didn't mean to distract. <laughs> now I have no idea what I was going to say. Yeah. Well, I was going to say I was going to drop out after we saw the first two episodes. I was like, mm, she hates this. I don't know what to do. And then I, I, found a wonderful article <laughs> online from the av club yeah. i think a blog post yeah that's uh the 10 episodes of moonlighting that show you what a groundbreaking whatever it's sort of i can link it in the show yeah. notes later on but um then i was going through and going like oh my god we have to see the dream sequence always rings yeah. twice well that's like, the one that this that's is so this is boundary breaking this yeah. is giving us two 1940s film noir movies on a primetime <laughs> show with the same characters in this sort of fantasy world. Yeah. Um, and then, and then I was like, you know what? If she doesn't like this show as much as I think, then I'm going to show her the weird Shakespeare one, okay. Atomic Shakespeare, <laughs> because she needs to know that this show decided to do an entire episode in iambic pentameter, yeah. <laughs> casting the leads in The Taming of the Shrew, just because. Yeah. And um, I think part of the just because is um, is the showrunner, whose name I keep getting wrong, Glenn Gordon Karen, um, <laughs> was originally inspired to do this be- by... Um, seeing a production of The Taming of the Shrew gave, uh, in, like, you know, Shakespeare in the Park. Yeah. Um, and was like, I want to do a show like that, but they work in a detective agency and they're modern or whatever. I don't even yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so I had to show you that one. Yeah. But I'm, I agree with you that the the dreams the film noir is like the the standout of of the yeah, four that the, we watched but. well except for that amazing amazing on location stunt shooting scene they did at the i mean like that that like woke me up from from nothing you know it got my brain going i was actually kind of impressed by the writing on on the taming of the shrew one I thought some of it was a little too silly, like the so, sunglasses on the horse was a little bit too much for me. I didn't mind the sunglasses so much, but I really could have done without the slide whistle sound effects when like yeah. slapstick things happen. Yeah. If somebody goes, fl- too many people flying across, yeah. the, like the slapstick thing didn't work for me. Yeah. The like fast dialogue yeah. in iambic pentameter was, was silly. Well... Also, I mean, like it's just one of the weaknesses of the um, of the shortness of the show is that the I think it would have been better if he could have spent more time showing how he was nice to her other than bringing her flowers like twice or whatever. 
they use some terrible <laughs> shorthand for for the hit him like it's supposed it to be you know months of them you know getting to know each other better and and drugstore chocolate yeah exactly that's right where there's grocery store chocolate the yellow box whatever that yeah. one is um but you know i actually i was i was like i don't know about this until the the very end and actually i think they they managed to pull off something that was um, I didn't expect it to go that way, which is weird. So, like, I think that they could have done a little bit more of the, you know. <laughs> well, and, and like, I don't know. The Taming to Shrew is an interesting play to me. I've read it a couple times. And to me, I think it's it's far more subversive than most people. Like, if you just give it, like, a casual reading, it seems like it's, like, a woman finally bending to the... To the, but, like, to me, like, in the text, and, and, you know, I'm not, you know, I take an A class in 16th century literature, um, but, you know, my analysis of the script is that it's a little bit more subversive, it's a little more of her winking at the, well, at, not at the camera, but at the audience, I guess. No, winking at the camera is moonlight. <laughs> That's right. That's the a other thing I wanted you to see. A little more of the, like, you know, because the last scene of, of Taming the Shrew is a conversation between Bianca and Catherine, and... Um, or Katarina, and, um, you know, essentially she's like, you know, you'll you'll find a lot of joy if you do what your husband says. But I think, like, if you're reading the text, that there's a little more there where she's like, you know, it's making him think that he gets his way or something like that. There's a little bit of more subversiveness there than, which, like, you know, you look for in Shakespeare anyway. So. I can't really comment on that. I yeah. don't think I've ever read Taming of the Shrew. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen a production of Taming of the Shrew, even though I took a whole class on Shakespeare yeah. in college. That's not one of the plays we did. But it's interesting that they chose to make her her physically violent. I mean, like, I get the sense that it's not her. It's, it's, it's her... You know, it's it's like the thing they criti- it's like, you know, she sure she sure can run her mouth, you know, kinda yeah, yeah. kinda thing, you know. So it's interesting that they made her physically violent. It was kind of that was a weird choice on on my especially because I thought some of the iambic pentameter dialogue that they wrote was kinda clever and I would have liked to see more of sort of a battle of wits kind of thing rather Having than the her- physicality. Having her get married at the altar, bound and gagged, was yeah, not really that, that was funny a little to disturbing. me. That was a, that bit, was a little disturbing. That, was a little, that didn't play well. I don't know if that ever played well, but it didn't well, really and then, play well. For yeah, me. and then the the music break, um, oh, where yes. he sings. Um, so you know, as uh, Bruce, well, you don't know, but as Bruce Willis was uh, starting his acting career and uh, making waves and moonlighting, he was also uh, trying to start his. Uh, his music career and uh i said i was remembering (laughs) that around the time of moonlighting uh, yeah probably because of moonlighting he started doing seagram's ads where he was like singing his bluesy okay like interesting (laughs) he had like an alter ego musical blues singer character named bruno or something it was an album might have been a movie i'm i don't remember i'm getting flashbacks of this but i haven't encountered this or thought about it since the 80s but um yeah i I should have showed you one of on youtube one of his ads with seagram's golden wine cooler everybody from the 80s will remember that gross with his harmonica Hanging out, uh, drinking with the buds. Boy, 80s uh, uh, quality alcoholic beverages to be had. It's true. (laughs) So, um, this, this was a case where I didn't pick one of my favorite things ever. I picked something that was a time capsule that I suddenly remembered. I remembered fondly. And I just had this, like, you should know that this exists. And that's what one of the reasons for doing this podcast is shut up and watch this. And the fact you never even heard of it. I mean, I probably had heard of it. But, like, the thing is, is there's, like, eight things with Moon in the title that I, yeah. I still haven't seen Moonstruck. So um, it's going to be on Criterion. So Moonstruck is good. So, so I, yeah, I wouldn't know. If moonlighting, Moonstruck, you know. <laughs> So that's it. Yeah, I, it's it's uh, interesting. The but the but something we didn't really see that much of, which you can't 
I don't know. I mean, I guess I would have had to be a moonlight, like a real moonlighting fan to know what are the episodes to show somebody. Yeah. And then like, I needed to know that, but then I also needed, I know you, but I also yeah. needed to know what are the ones to match with you. You know, yeah. you can, Doctor Who, you show people blink or something yeah. like that. You know, there are certain things that will suck people into it. And I didn't need to suck you into it, but I wanted to sh- demonstrate certain things about this show. And one of the things we didn't really see much of, just glimpses of, was um, how the show, I guess, started to break the fourth wall yeah. in terms of like talking to the camera, the characters. I mean, the Bruce Willis and Sybil Shepherd will break character and say something about the script or the or the production mm. or the shooting schedule. Um, we used to get apologies when they had to show reruns or, yeah. or clip shows, which was I actually really I actually remember. <laughs> Like probably in that that you know that season of Discovery or later on maybe season three like looking forward to Moonlighting Night I mean I'm I don't know what else was on that night yeah and then turning it on and going and groaning and being like ah it's another repeat because oh, yeah. because of this like insane production schedule and like the overrunning time and the not finishing things on time they were barely able to produce like sixteen episodes yeah. a season at the height you know and so they would always put on reruns at the last second. You get the same, like, so you would turn it on and it'd be like three weeks in a row with a rerun. And I remember that feeling. And then they knew (laughs) that they were doing that. So they created, they did a clip show where they had it introduced by Rona Barrett, the like, I don't know, she was Entertainment Tonight or one of those types of gossip columnists sort of things Mm. who came on, like the show starts, she's like, nope, it's not a new episode again. (laughs) And then like they did a clip show kind of thing. Um, I never saw the series finale, but I understand it's one of those things where the show completely deconstructs. Yeah. Like where they, like the show, the last scenes of the show plays out with like them pulling away sets and shutting off lights mm-hmm. and like the, and them being rewritten out of existence. Like you don't see that that's going to happen when you see episodes one and two, Yeah, that they're going to actually do that kind of thing with this show where they're yeah. actually going to just be we're in a television show we're not always well written we don't always get things in on time (laughs) um we don't know what we're doing half the time the set is going to be gone in an hour like but they started to do that more and more it's kind of gimmicky but it was definitely i can't think of anything else that was doing that in the 80s yeah and i don't know what does I, i know that's 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 been the dna of other shows since yeah. and other movies since to have that sort of meta level of commentary on on the production yeah i think it's really unique and we didn't really get to see that aspect of it i think you have to get into more into it, yeah, yeah yeah yeah. but i think we got it a little bit with the prologue for the taming of the true for atomic shakespeare yeah. because how does it start it starts with the like it's just a shot of like kids legs sitting on the like yeah from you know sitting on the sofa and his mom's like what are you doing i'm watching moonlighting yeah she's like oh that stupid show with the people always arguing and they really just want to sleep together no you got to go up and do your homework oh mom (laughs) and then he goes up and he has to read the taming of the shrew and and he opens a book and it turns into the taming of the shrew starring bruce willis and simple shepherd as david and maddie and all we could say the whole time was that kid's going to get an F on his report. Yeah, it was a terrible version. I mean, like he's reading the wrong book. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> what was I going to say? Well, you know, to me, it's sort of a proto... Like there were... It's funny. Like people think of the 80s of being the sort of like... I think the only thing I... You know, I did some extensive research on TV at one point... But, like, the sort of beginning of the more modern television era with, like, TV arcs and, and like, they always talk about NYPD Blue as the first sort of TV show to break away from the sort of episodic, like, we're dealing with this one thing in this episode and then it goes away, like Law and Order, you know, kind of thing, and started dealing with larger arcs across seasons that, you know, really is what makes television so addicting today, you know, Mm-hmm. is that sort of that like drive to find out what's next you know and like I think that I don't know and then so much experimentation started happening you know just as as more and more different types of shows were being made and um you know that 
this seems like it's part of that, like the beginning of that. But like, it's weird that nobody talks about that, that that the fact that they were shooting like a movie, which is how TV shows are made now, where they're shot like movies, you know, they shoot 13, you know, hour long episodes, but it's essentially one giant, you know, movie length thing, you know, um, so yeah, it's I'm curious as to whether it had any sort of like mini arcs or anything like that, you know. Well, I remember it essentially being episodic with a different yeah. mystery or a different gimmick every week. Yeah. But the major arc that I I mean, the arc of the series is like you have you have a problem here with the with the very concept of the show because it's set up as a romantic comedy with yeah. with anger and abrasion and sparks flying and they don't like each other but they're attracted to each other but you have to do that every week and yeah. so you're kind of always like ramping up the tension and coming back down and ramping yeah. up the tension and like you can only do that for so long so the the arc yeah. For most of the series, the most successful arc was will they or won't they? Oh, okay. Will they ever get together? Well, see, and that's that's fine. I mean, like, well, if you compare that... To, and I think... I don't know 100%, but it, it's clear to me... I'm I'm good at, at noticing things, but it's clear to me that maybe there are certain shows, and maybe Buffy is one of them, that was at least in, in part influenced a little bit about by this sort of thing. You know, but then the story is not will they, won't they, which Buffy definitely has will they, won't they throughout the whole sure, series, yeah. you know. But it's more about character growth over longer periods of time, you know. Um, and the problem with will they, won't they is that it doesn't allow for any of that sort of character growth over time because you're sort of stuck in that same question all the time. Whereas if you answer that question, that's what actually... It's interesting to see how different people, different showrunners approach things. So, like, the Parks and Recreation guy who, like, I mean, like, so his will-they-won't-they's don't last very long. Like, he'll have characters that's like, will-they-won't-they, and then all of a sudden they get married. Like, in the next episode, like Andy and (laughs) April did. You know, so he's like, his part is like, well, what happens if we say yes? What happens if, if we, if we, you know you know, break that rule of, you know, the show goes down if we answer that question, you know. But if you build your show only on one question, then... Well, I think a lot yeah. of people felt the show did go downhill yeah. after they answered that question at the end of season three. Yeah. They did two more seasons after that, and they steadily lost audiences yeah. along that way because I think that actually was... Like, when they <laughs> they solved question <laughs> I, and i don't remember anything about the aftermath of that i don't even think i i'm not even 100 percent sure i watched up to that point i would yeah. bet that i saw season two and most maybe all of season three yeah and then i lost interest yeah you know and then i probably saw season one and repeat because they freaking were always showing repeats yeah. <laughs> so they were probably always showing re-showing season one and season two whenever they couldn't deliver a new episode yeah but yeah, I mean, you know, some people like it's a it's a shame that there was so much blame about Sybil Shepherd that yeah. you were talking about earlier, but also um, a lot of critics and audience I think felt that the show lost something when there wasn't a new question to to give you dramatic tension over an arc or over a long yeah. haul, and then they had. Her, she had another love interest for a while. Mark Harmon was on the show as a regular for some okay. amount of time. <laughs> yeah. And, um... I don't know. It seems like... Did she me, get married at some point? I, I think... I don't know. Something. I don't know if it's an attention span thing or just the way that TV is now, but I just don't think you can do that the way that you used to be able to. I mean, like... I mean, like, it just seems, I mean, like, just the thought of it is exhausting to me. The, like, yeah. I don't even remember when they flipped the switch on actively starting a will they or won't they kind yeah. of thing. Because they go more with they irritate the crap out of each other yeah. for, the, for the first run bit of the show. Well, you know, it's, I'm going to, it's interesting, it, Kind of like it makes me think of the X Files, 
which is similar in a way, you know. <laughs> That's funny. It, it is. It's very similar in a way. But, like, they, I mean, they made a point of never talking about the relationship between Scully and Mulder, like, ever. Like, it's, I think, only in the movies that you discover that they've dated or they have a kid together or something. I, I actually have not seen the movie. I haven't so seen any of that stuff. I actually have not seen the last season of The X-Files. No, I've seen the movie, but I never saw the last season. But, I mean, like, you know, if you don't make it the focus, then you can, you know, do it forever, I guess. But if, if it's the focus, then... You can only crawl along incrementally, you know, so long well, before you have to do it or we, don't do it. And then it's frustrating. Well, we know? were definitely not at the point of arc television yeah. at this. Everything was episodic still, unless it was a soap opera. Like you mentioned Dynasty or Dallas, mm. those kinds of things. Those those were telling the longer stories. But there, everything else was sort of like mystery of the week Yeah, for a drama. Well, you know, what's interesting to me, and I'm not a soap opera watcher, but I have watched um, a couple of telenovelas that have been made into yeah. American sitcoms, Jane the Virgin and um, I can't remember the other one, Ugly Betty. Um, yeah. But the thing about those is that, oh, and um, <laughs> Go, which is... That also, hasn't been remade uh, as yeah, an American no, show. Oh, no, it's uh, uh, South American, uh, Viva Tu Manera. Um, but what's interesting time, to them it? is that they do have arcs that they have specific story arcs that end mm -hmm. and then a new one will start or well, if they're doing it well, they're overlapping. Yeah, too, or so in the case of starting. Jane, the version, they're actual shows that like they only last, you know, 50 episodes or whatever. And that's the whole show. And then they have a new show that that person starts yeah. in again, which I think is closer to how we do things now that showrunners feel entitled to end their show at the point that it's a good time to end it. Mm -hmm. um, so you have a complete story that feels wrapped up, that doesn't feel like it's drug along until there's just gasps left, you know? <laughs> I'm just praying at the altar of Mad Men right now because yeah. I love that so much. Yeah. And it ended just right. Well, I mean, I think there's a number of shows where they were just able to, to end it really well by having a succinct plan of how long this is going to run you know, this is how it's going to end. Um, it really does make for a more satisfying show instead of just being something that you pump until, you know. Until it gets canceled. Yeah, yeah. Which is Moonlighting <laughs> got canceled, you know. So I, I think I think it was an interesting watch. Um, there were, especially the first couple episodes, some parts that were really hard for me to watch. Cringy. Cringy, yeah. Um if not uh, anger-inducing. Yeah, yeah. I just, it's it's hard for me, I mean, to realize that, that it was that out in the open then. But, like, it's also frustrating because really not as much has changed as we would have hoped. You know, I think we're making strides. But I think we should be much farther along in this whole uh, evolution of, of, of man <laughs> than we seem to be. <laughs> Not man, Ma not men, man, so much. all of man. Yeah, <laughs> we're not there. Yeah, you know, there. I don't know. Maybe we'll get there eventually. Hey, I knew we'd have an interesting <laughs> conversation about this one way or the other. <laughs> it's not Seven Samurai. Yeah, it's it definitely is not Seven Samurai. <laughs> I don't know. There's something to be said for a couple of talented actors on screen going after one another, but a little more subtlety, you know. No, this was not about subtlety. Yeah, this is not about subtlety. <laughs> this was... I mean, you can see how silly the dialogue yeah. is. I mean, this is all very in-your-face, over-the-top. Yeah. And acted at a really high volume right yeah. i mean they're like so many of the scenes are them shouting yeah at the top of their lungs That's slamming it's, doors it's like a, huffing and pacing it's away like disney yeah. channel <laughs> it's like proto disney channel yeah. but um but it did also i mean when they did dramatic scenes they did dramatic scenes and dropped yeah. that veneer of silliness yeah. but it's just the silliness is better than the drama well the, you know other thing <laughs> 
it just it reminds me of oddly it reminds me of Chinatown in a way. Huh. Something Another thing about that's the, not your favorite. Uh, well, I don't hate Chinatown, and you know, um, it also reminds me of I think something that was much better executed. Um, Michael Douglas, Kathleen Turner. The War of the Roses. No. Um, Jewel of the Nile. It's not Michael Douglas, is it? It's Romancing the Stone. Romancing Jewel of the, the Stone. Nile. Yeah. Yeah, that was them. Yeah. Which is similar in a way. The same sort of like... Wait, back up. What? Where are you? Where does Chinatown come into this? What so reminds you way, of Chinatown? Uh, so the way that Sybil Shepherd is shot, that sort of like gauzy, soft, you yeah. know, and she's got her flowing blonde hair and, you know, she she's a just movie looks star. like she looks like... Faye, Dan- fun- Faye Dunaway from China. It's Faye Dunaway. They shoot her like uh, um, Rita Hayworth in the <laughs> yeah. second dream sequence, the one yeah. where she's the femme fatale. That's right. <laughs> I don't know what actress they're going for. Put in the, the blame in the on me. Yeah, really, really, yeah. pretty much. Well, yeah, we've uh, gone places we didn't know we would go. That's true. I still don't know if it was a good thing to show you uh, that this show existed or not, but at least uh, now you know something more about uh, television history well, and I you like it, knowing things. Yeah, I do like knowing things. I know. I think it was interesting. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't be opposed to seeing a few more, just not from the first season. <laughs> Interestingly, when I went back and read the AV Club thing, they were cringing at the pilot episode yeah. and said, like, it's it it has a really odd, just the pilot doesn't give you a sense of what the show is at all. It's yeah. so straight and it's so yeah. bland. And I think I liked it a little more than they said. And I did like the... Well, I didn't know if it was supposed to be funny. Like, was he just being an asshole or was this like over the top? It was supposed top? to be funny, <laughs> yeah. but I don't think they figured out the tone that She yet. was playing it so straight that, you know. So, interestingly, I know we've said a lot about, uh, we've raved about Sybil a lot on the show, but at least according to the Wikipedia article, she's the one that, that said, when she read the pilot and the scripts and they, and, and they were preparing the show, who said... I get this. This is a screwball comedy. You're doing Howard Hawks. And like the showrunner and Bruce Willis were like, what? Yeah. And she's the one who said, no, we're all going to watch Bringing Up Baby and 20th Century and um, His Girl Friday. And then they did. And then that's when, according to legend, that they kind of redrafted it with the overlapping dialogue and the and playing up that kind of like, classic screwball. But she's the one who said, yeah. let's do this like a screwball comedy. Well, that was a good idea. Unfortunately, the writing was not up to that level. It's not as... <laughs> <laughs> and, like, the thing is, is, like, Cary Grant's characters are never, like, outright sexist. I mean, some, no. some of the things. Well... The spanking part, I guess. He does... <laughs> push Catherine Hepburn over that's true from the face yeah. like he comes up puts his hand on her face and pushes her to the ground that's true. opening shots of uh, Philadelphia story that's right I forgot about that which is played for laughs yes so so it's good to go back 50 years when you're uh, writing I don't know but I'm really curious <laughs> I mean I'm somewhat curious maybe not really curious about what this was up against what what, what else was on the air in 1985-86 because this was this was by the second season. This was Directors Guild of America awards. It it was getting nominated for best comedy and best drama, different two different categories, yeah. and it was getting all kind twenty one Emmy nominations. The the film noir episode is like on all the lists of like best television episodes ever. Yeah. <laughs> So, but what, what was it playing up against, you yeah. know, because this was something special back then that maybe looks more like a time capsule piece now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe just the fact that she's talking about, um, and, and standing up for herself, even though she's being completely bowled over, maybe just the fact of, of someone speaking up for themselves was groundbreaking. Well, yeah. it it was a good ride back in the eighties, and I I enjoyed it for what it, for it was something back then. It was it was made me laugh. Now some of it makes me cringe, but um, 
Well, but I, I really, really enjoyed What are we uh, as people with things that yeah. made us laugh? I mean, like, I don't want to I don't want to was... tell you how much I enjoyed Ace Ventura Pet Detective back in the day. So <laughs> maybe we should do that on the show because I've never <laughs> seen never Ace Ventura. Seen it. I don't, ah. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we've run our course. Unless you have anything else to contribute or complain about. No. <laughs> okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna hold my tongue like a good woman should. <laughs> Audience, you realize there's nothing I can say right now either way. So we're just gonna call it end of the day, and we'll see you again. We will never see you. Yes. We're not doing Zoom episodes, but anyway. We'll be back in a couple weeks with Ashley's Choice. Thanks for listening, and uh, join us again next time. Bye.